It's Christmas time in the city. Tis the season, Cooper. Zach, you know, it's fun to sing along with you, but that actually grinds my gears. Does it really? Yeah, there are a few things that irk me the way that Christmas being celebrated on November 18th and even earlier in November. Right. Irk is a strong word. Yeah, and I use it intentionally. I bet. You know, I'm here to I'm here today on air to make a claim that Thanksgiving is the most underrated and Oof. overlooked holiday. Talk about in the United it. States. Talk about it. I would agree. I grew up in Branson, Missouri. And if you know anyone from Branson, look over at them and ask them if they've even heard of Thanksgiving. Because as soon as the creepy Halloween decorations come down, all of a sudden you start seeing Christmas trees everywhere, like Christmas lights yep. down the roads. And I'm like, people, there's another holiday. There's another ho- And it's a good one. That's twice as big and as Halloween. It's like, chill out, man. It's Easy. a great Christmas is a great holiday. Oh, it's I amazing. have nothing against I, Christmas. I mean, it's the best. It is. Christmas is the best it's holiday. It's the best holiday. But thanksgiving is easily the second best it deserves a fighting chance right you know i I think there are some good things in thanksgiving like uh, obviously i think that the most important thing is the macy's thanksgiving day parade oh without a doubt and even in that it knows it's not christmas it does it's such a respectful holiday it is if you think of the best part of the thanksgiving day parade it concludes by pointing towards christmas right santa's there exactly it's It's like okay thanksgiving has had its time right it's had its day had it maybe week if you're crazy right but it's over. Yeah. And it they know it's, it's Christmas time. It's like a generous introduction. It's like it knows it's the receptionist to Christmas. Right. All right, go on back. Mr. Claus is ready for you. Yeah. That's what Thanksgiving is saying. But here's what's even better is right after the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, people see Santa. They get excited for Christmas. But then everyone, without knowing it, the first thing they do to celebrate Christmas is they enjoy the dog show. <laughs> yes! They watch the dog show passively because they accidentally leave their TV on and they just watch poodles jump over logs. I literally don't even know what the show's called. Like I, like I don't the, either. The National Something Dog Show. Yeah, but I watch it every show. year. And what will end up happening, you know I'm a commercial guy. We've talked about this before. We have. I get sucked in and I get sucked into the television. So oftentimes it will be, I'm just sitting on the couch while my family's having intentional conversation and I'm watching dogs Fun fact, I'm highly allergic Very. to dogs. If you have a dog and you invite Cooper over, he may not come. Right. I need I literally carry allergy medicine with me at all times. The dog show though. Yes, no, it's and it's it's the first thing that families do to celebrate Christmas and they don't even know it. So here's the claim we're making. One, Thanksgiving is overlooked and needs more attention. And underrated. It's very underrated. There's a lot of food. There's a lot of upside to Thanksgiving. And number two, almost every American family's first celebration of Christmas is the dog show. First appropriate timed celebration. Exactly. So I say we embrace that. Yes. As a generation, as a society, let's embrace that the dog show is amazing. Do your research. Find a couple dogs you want to win. Root for someone. Root roof roof for someone <laughs> <laughs> that was funny thank you <laughs> all right here we go welcome to the next generation leader podcast where we believe great leaders are listeners especially during their youth good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them i'm your host zach funderberg here with my co-host coop mccullough coop how are we we're in the studio zach merry christmas coop 
Don't get me started, man. I know. We already did. Coop, I'm excited about today's interview. Do you mind telling everyone when and where we first met this guy? Yes. So Zach and I were involved in a discipleship program our freshman year at Dallas Baptist University. It's called Stonehouse. And every Thursday night, our director, Chris Holloway, would bring in a speaker every Thursday night for us to listen to. And so this man was brought in and there was a moment where he was reading some scripture. He was reading Psalm 7 and we're all following along in our Bibles and I look up and I realize my man didn't bring a Bible and his eyes are closed. Right. He's he's reciting like all, I don't know if it was Psalm 7, that's just what I think of. But I think it was. He was saying all of Psalm 7 from memory without drawing attention. To, like it was just like, I was like that power move, power move. That's what we're where we want to be yes. in a couple of years. And you tap me on my leg and you're like, dude. He doesn't have a Bible and his eyes are closed. And we left that just mind blown. Our jaws were on the, we had to pick our jaws off the floor. We did. And we had to do it again the other day. We walked into this office wanting to talk about the informed leader, talking about information, what it looks like for a leader to be in the know with culture. Mm -hmm. And we left with a Swiss army knife of leadership. Yes. Tools. And that's why we titled this episode that because that we were, Zach and I were talking and there was nothing we could think of that would adequately describe what was going to be talked about in this episode other than this is a tool that every leader needs right and i promise you if you listen to this you will be a better leader i promise yes this is dr nick pitts or just nick one of the most personable guys you'll ever meet yes i think another story comes to mind yeah Zach, that i want to share okay so you and i both ran a half marathon oh we did and that's another story for another intro of a podcast stay tuned for another episode that might be the next one i think so but anyways we're running a half marathon and we see nick pitts yeah he's there running and he's super personal we walk up to him and say hi because we were with chris holloway um our now friend and we were all talking and he was just I think he was dual wielding two Mountain Dews. Yes. And we were just kind of like, uh, what are you doing? We he's thought like, he was just there to hang. But right. then we look and he has one of those like bibs with right, a number the runner numbers. So he's running. Right. So I asked him, I was like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, like this is how I get going. I just need caffeine to jumpstart my heart. And I was amazed at the right. capacity this man has. Not only that, he didn't run the half marathon with no. us. He ran the full marathon. And the reason he ran it, it was because a week earlier, his right. friend bet him a certain amount of money to donate to charity that he wouldn't be able to run it. And he did it. This guy is awesome. He's a amazing. guy that we look up to, we want to be like, and he's already challenged us so much just from this podcast, just yes. from this interview. We've already read like two books since because yes. he was talking about the value of reading books, the value of information, the value of knowledge. And just listening and sitting under this guy has made me a better leader and better person. And I hope it does for you as well. I cannot agree more, Zach. So here we go. Here's our interview with Nick Pitts. Well, Dr. Pitts. No way, Nick. it's Nick. Nick, it's good, to, it's good to be with you, and it's good to have you on and just to get to listen uh, to you and ask you some questions. But sorry about just introducing yourself. Who are you? What you doing? Yeah, so my name is Nick Pitts, originally from Tennessee here in Texas now. So uh, followed Davy Crockett out here and hopefully not going to suffer the same fate. And so I serve as the executive director for the Institute for Global Engagement here at Dallas Baptist and kind of do some radio and TV stuff as well, being the kind of millennial voice uh, on cultural issues of the day. Right. And speaking of that, 
part of your job is what you call the daily briefing. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So daily briefing is just a kind of a newsletter that's sent out. It's about a, a five minute read that highlights the top six to eight stories of the day and tries to answer the question, what would the biblical narrative say about this particular issue? Trying to help Christians of all shapes and sizes better understand not only the news of the day, but how does the good news of Jesus Christ inform how they should think about some of those issues? Right, and that plays right into what we want to talk about today of how information can play into leadership and how young leaders need to be taking in information and then applying that to their decision making. Yeah. So talk about that. Talk about cultural trends, information. How should leaders be uh, consuming that and then using that within their leadership influence? Yeah. So, I mean, just at the very core of a leader, right? Uh, the idea of a leader is an individual that one is uh, serving the followers, two is defining reality for the followers, and then three has set a vision or a goal, and then they've gone about trying to motivate followers to be able to follow after them. And so when I think about like being informed by the news, I'm one, trying to understand what are the obstacles that are before me and what are the opportunities that can help propel me toward that particular end that I have in mind relative to the group that is following after me. It's really important for us to understand what are the forces and dynamics that are at play in the society that I'm operating within. The second piece is I got to know the people. Um, certain people are motivated by different things. And so some person might be motivated by an reward of monetary value. Other person might just need some bit of encouragement with uh, the words that I say. Understanding that people operate differently and I need to know the people that are around me as well. So it requires an emotional intelligence, kind of a situational awareness in that piece. Understanding also the context and the mission that my uh, particular uh, following is moving in. So I want to know societally uh, what it is, the dynamics that are at play. Two, I want to know interpersonally what it is at play. And then three, hopefully I can define a reality and set a clear mission and then figure out how can I serve these individuals in such a way that brings out the best in them that allows all of us to be able to experience the best which is the mission of the group. Kind of break down defining a reality. Yeah. What does that mean? What does it look like for a leader to define a reality for their followers? Yeah. So uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to clearly and concisely articulate the mission that's before us. And the second thing I'm trying to do is I'm trying to understand the context that we're operating in. Uh, uh, as a Christian, biblically, I just, I've always had a particular inclination towards the men of Issachar. In uh, 1 Chronicles 12, um, you have this, this tribe of people that understood the times. So as an individual that's trying to define reality, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to allow individuals to be able to help have them, ha allow them to have eyes to see, ears to hear what's around them, and then in turn us to join the work that God's doing and, and see as we pursue after God and as we pursue after the vision that he's given us, how can we best be his servants and, and kind of fulfill them? That's really good. There's kind of a legend circling around the daily briefing. About the Loch Ness Monster? About, not or necessarily. No, no, they're about, this flat. They're about this Nick flat. Pitts. No, no, man. The fact that you get up extremely early in Isn't the morning to do this. It's so dumb. What, what time do you get up? I, you know, so, uh, hey, here's what, I'll, I'll answer, I won't answer the question right now, but I'll, I'll give context. I am extroverted to the very core. I love being around people. Right. I love hanging out with y'all. Uh, Cooper over here, I love hanging out with y'all. And so I, whenever there's people around, I want to be around people. So that's always going to force me to say yes to whatever uh, coffee shop, late night gathering. I'm always going to want to be around people. But then there's also the introverted side of me. Like 
I love reading. I've got like this steady stream of books that I always want to be putting down, but you can't really read around other people. And so I probably, that in turn forces me to want to wake up a little bit earlier to read and to hang out a little bit later uh, with people. So I usually get up around three o'clock uh, to start the day of briefing. There it is. That's yeah. the that's the legend circling it. But yeah. with that, I want to really ask, the reason for asking was to get to the point of where did your hunger and thirst for this information, to, to be knowledgeable about so many different parts of our environment mm -hmm. that drives you to get up at three in the morning to create a briefing about the news that you can give to people? Like, yeah. where does that come from? Yeah, so it, it kind of goes back to, like, I always feel bad to kind of share that. One, because it makes individuals feel like, well, I'm less than right now because I'm, I'm sleeping at three o'clock. And so for listeners that are listening right now, don't feel bad for sleeping yes. in until uh, sleeping in until four o'clock in the morning because I know that you all are waking up before. No, I don't feel bad just because I realize that this is just the way that God has knit me. And just as I would not expect, uh, you would not expect me to operate with your gifts. I don't expect you to operate with the gifting and skill set that God's placed into me. And then the second piece is, uh, to a certain degree, it's, it's like I'm divinely haunted. Like when Jesus gives that parable of the parable of the talents, and he gives individuals one five talents, another two talents, and another one a singular talent, there's this expectation that we're to deploy those talents while he's away, and that he's going to ask what we did with them when he comes back. I know, I don't know whether I've been given one, two, I don't know what I've been given, but here's what I do know. The, the talents that I, I, I can identify within my own life, I know there's going to come a day that my father is going to come back or I'm going to have to give an account for what I did. And that haunts me. Um, I'm not haunted by the idea of whether God loves me. I think that's very clear in the biblical narrative. I'm not haunted by the idea of condemnation. I think it's very clear that God strikes away all that condemnation. What I am divinely haunted and compelled by love to do is to deploy those talents in such a way that I might be able to further his kingdom. And so I, there's never a part of me that wants to expect individuals to wake up when I wake up, but I do know that I've just been built in such a way that I don't have to set my alarm clock, and it just seems very natural uh, for me to wake up. It seems very natural for me just to I love to read and to try to help make sense of this world in such a way that individuals that have eyes to see and ears to hear can see, like C.S. Lewis says, that Aslan is on the move. And hopefully I can be an instrument in God's hand to inspire others to be a benefit so that others might taste and see and know that God's good. Yeah, and I think the, the purpose of wanting to ask that question was not to make listeners or make even myself, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't get up at three, yeah. but it's the fact that you wake up that early not just to wake up that early and say you do, but in order to maximize your time. Yeah. And you're doing stuff yeah. during that, those hours. Yeah, like a, so perfect example is like if the greatest killer of joy, one of the greatest killers of joy, uh, would be if you said, Nick, I need you to get into Excel and start to manipulate this data with some form. Like that would, that would, that would make me, that would just, a little part of me would die. Uh, if I had to do something like that. But I know there are other individuals, and maybe even you, Coop. Like, I know there are other individuals. Neither of us. <laughs> Neither. Neither no, of us. I, so I think we can all agree that Microsoft Excel is the killer of all joy. It is. It's, a, it's it an is. instrument of the enemy. Okay, I'm glad we have that uh, settled. No, uh, like, there's just a part of me that I know that comes alive because I think it's just a, it's a sweet little reminder. It's an ember of the father of all lights he's put inside of me that I want to be able to, I want to be able to fan that flame of the gift of God that he's put inside of me. 
I think that's just one of the ways in which he does it. And when I don't do that, I think I'm being disobedient to him. And I, I want to make sure that I, I'm, not, I'm not like uh, David trying to wear Saul's armor. Like, I got to be, I got to go in with my slingshot. And it looks kind of foolish to those outside the world, but it's equally foolish in God's eyes when I'm trying to, uh, trying to be like Coop, like when I'm trying to wear Saul's armor into battle. I got I to gotta go in with my slingshot, and I got to believe it to be true that greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. And the way that he's gifted me is, uh, is understanding out of his like, sovereignty that the world doesn't need uh, a second-rate uh, Cooper. The world needs a first-rate Nick. And so I, I'm going to give it my all. That's good. And waking up that early, you you take in a lot of information. Yeah. You you read. That's one example you gave. You keep yeah. stay up to date on the news. You get into the word. Mm-hmm. So there's many different fields yeah. that you um, you intake mm-hmm. uh, then to pour out to other people. So what practically are things that people can be doing to better inform themselves of the environment in which they live? Yeah. In order to lead people better. Yeah. I I think there's a piece of it one that you, you want to have a I, I think you want to have a pulse on the day. Right. I think it's really important to understand the weather. And so uh, just as like you, you would want to make sure that if, if it's raining outside that you've got an umbrella, it's really important to understand what's happening during the day. And so I think there's a piece of that. It's also important to understand that it's not summer right now. We're in fall. And so you, you probably have put away summer clothes to a certain degree. And I think that's where the idea of reading comes in relative to books. I think it's really important for us to kind of understand that there's nothing new underneath the sun. And so not just to be so myopically consumed in the day's news that we don't understand historical ideas and trends that are patterning. And that's why I try to read a couple of books a week. Um, It's this idea of a century club. Uh, So here's where, this is a funny little thing. So uh, I was reading Decision Points by George W. Bush, and he used to have these competitions with Karl Rove. And they would always try to see who could read the most books in a year. And I was reading Ben Sass has a book called The Vanishing American Adult. And he says that uh, he wanted to be a part of the Century Club. It's reading 100 books a year. It's and, wild. And I'm thinking to myself, knowing that President, uh, then President Bush with Karl Rove, his chief strategist, was reading over 100 books a year. If he's the leader of the dang free world, what excuse do I have? to not read, uh, to not read a lot. And so that kind of struck that out of my mind. So I want to be reading ideas to, and not just be so consumed myopically in the news that I don't understand the historical trends that are taking place. But then I think a a third piece that you really, you you, uh, tapped into is this idea of being tuned in to the biblical narrative. Like I'll, you shouldn't, I'll never get over it. Like even, even reading same things that I've read since I was 18 years old. Like it's a reminder of what, what Paul's going to say to the church at Philippi, uh, that these things are a reminder for you, but they're a safeguard for me. Uh, to continue to keep his word in my heart so that I might not sin against him. And one of the ways that we don't sin against him is to recognize how good he is, how satisfying he is, and how the world wants to offer us a bucket of water, but my southern peculiarities, God's offering me a glass of sweet tea. And I want to drink deeply of that so that I can just see the lukewarm water that's around me. It's just unsatisfying. Amen. Okay, so what's the best sweet tea in Dallas area? That's good. I, uh, we are very partial to Chicken Express. Oh, man. 
We Jay love chicken express. express. That's like borderline. That's like borderline uh, diabetes when you drink that stuff. That's like that almost. It's, thick. it's like you're chewing the sugar. Oh, it's, 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 it's good. Yeah, it's and good. you're drinking later, and I you can it, still taste. It. It's a reminder of God's goodness and grace in a broken, fallen world. Yeah. It is. Yeah, yeah. I so. I would say Chicken Express, but it's like eating a meal in and of itself. It is. Like, you just feel like, I feel like a buoy yeah. after that. I, kind of McAllister's. Have you all had McAllister's yeah. sweet tea? The McAllister's um, at not, not enough to remember it. Okay. Oh, wow. Sheesh. There it is. Okay. Love it. Well, we're done with this description. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not there. It's not the That's fun. I mean, I want to go back to books. Okay. Just put you on the spot here. If you were to hand me one book as a as a young leader looking okay. towards leadership, what would that one book be? Oh man, your one, one book. The the book that has transformed your life, or or something other than the Bible. Yeah, a leadership book that has transformed my life. Uh, I okay, so I'm gonna go with first first book here. We got to go with is there's a book uh, by Howard Gardner. It's called Leading Minds, and he posits this idea that leaders are storytellers. Really good leaders are individuals that create a new story. Uh, N.T. Wright, uh, who is this Anglican bishop, he is, he's got this line that has just captivated my understanding. He says that you can tell someone to do something and you'll change their day. You can share a story and you'll change their life. Um, I think Jesus understood that the, the narrative finds its home in our heart in a way that is unlike any other command that he could give us. And that's why I deployed those narratives so frequently in the biblical narrative. Uh, and what Gardner does is he traces these individuals that have been able to tell compelling stories and then in turn invite individuals into that story. That's one book in particular that kind of, that really does kind of gravitate, that I gravitate with yeah. pretty quickly. And it's funny you mentioned that because it seems like we haven't done many interviews, but kind of a common thread through all of them is stories. Mm -hmm. The fact that people are compelled to stories and people respond to stories. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like the news as well, or yeah. staying up to date on the environment. Stories compel people and stories allow you to lead people better. Can you kind of talk about stories and the, the, the part that that plays? Yeah. I, one, there's an individual uh, uh, that's a University of Iowa professor that says that we are operating out of a narrative paradigm today. And out of that narrative paradigm, he says that the only way that we make sense of the world is through stories. I think you can poke some holes in that to a certain degree, but I do know it to be true that there is, there's that Augustinian idea that we can, we can travel to the furthest places of the world to see the most beautiful uh, sunrises, to be able to listen to the, to the water from a waterfall hitting the Grand Lake. We can see uh, the most majestic of mountains. But yet we will pass by one another, those that are created in the image of God, without giving a second thought. I think there's a way that stories can accentuate uh, the divine inside of us, and the deep calls to deep, and that compels us to want to work uh, in such a way that is uh, just a part of who we are. And, uh, so I'm always just been compelled by the story paradigm. But then also, I, I think you've got to, stories make things accessible as well. Um, I think that's why even Paul would say, when he's, when he's sharing with the church at Corinth, with all of their troubles, especially in that first book, that he is going to say, uh, with audacity, he'll say in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ Jesus. That, the story of Jesus, man, 
he is he's perfect like it's inaccess it's like almost inaccessible like be perfect for I'm perfect it's like that's unattainable God it's it, it's not feasible but then for Paul to be able to have the audacity to say well well Jesus might be a, a little bit too inaccessible for you but I'm doing my best to follow after him so I want you to follow after me as well I think that idea of putting a story that makes things a little bit more accessible to people uh, has a, an ability to be able to draw people toward what you're doing. Uh, and as a leader, I think that's that's kind of part and parcel of what you're wanting to do. You're wanting to be an individual that not only can uh, compellingly uh, tell the story of where you're wanting to lead people, but also in turn, you're wanting to kind of embody that as well. And say, not only just do as I do, but say as I say is right. That's so good. I love that. Can I want to dive into a leader's perspective, yeah. a leader as a decision maker. Yeah. Um, want to break down a quote that better informed leaders don't always make better decisions, but better decisions almost always start with better informed leaders. Yeah. Kind of speak into that, the decision making process and how information, knowledge, the, the quest for knowledge, if you will, can inform and then impact decision making. Yeah. Uh, so great question. One, I would say I want to eradicate this myth, right? So at the very core, we've got to say that we're, uh, we are rational individuals. I think we're individuals that have reason, but we don't always use reason. Uh, so for example, I know my watch is telling me how few steps I've taken today. It's giving me a lot of information, but it's not necessarily making me any more healthy just because I have that information. Uh, the importance is taking that information and using it. It's really important. Jeff Bezos, uh, uh, Oh, I don't even know how to describe Bezos, entrepreneur, right. billionaire, killer in the industry. He says that he makes decisions off 70% of the information that's gathered. He says it's untenable to wait for 100% because by the time you wait for 100%, it's already too late. 50% uh, is too little information to kind of take the risk on. 70% uh, he's found is kind of the sweet spot. And so uh, waiting for 70% of the information. Two, uh, the thing I'm always cognizant of is Again, I want to I want to be aware of the trends. Uh, I want to be keenly aware. I want to I want to breathe. I want to eat. I want to sleep on the mission of. So, for example, here on of the Institute for Global Engagement, I want to know what that mission is, and I want to set up systems and structures in such a way that really do propel us towards that particular mission. And then, in turn, I want to understand where the opportunities and obstacles that are around me that would keep us from getting to that mission. And then I want to lead us in such a way that capitalizes on the opportunities and tries to avoid some of the obstacles. So that's part of the decision-making process. But then in turn, like, I'm just a Christian too. And I need to, I'm keenly aware that if I love is just a key component of who the leader is. You read the biblical narrative and individuals that don't love, it's like you're banging a gong. Like, I, I don't, I, I don't know if you guys are SNL people, like I, I just think about uh, uh, need more cowbell. Bruce yeah. Dickinson might want more cowbell, but I don't think the world needs more cowbell. Right. I don't think, and so I don't want to be Will Ferrell that's banging a gong and has my shirt riding high up mid thigh. So I want to lead in a way that's not beating more cowbell. I want to lead in a way that's able to. You're able to hear the rest of the band play as well. And so I want to do that with love. And I think love's always looking for the best and seeking to redeem the worst. And it's more than just a feeling, and this is where I think the systems and structures come into play, because I know that there's going to be times 
where I'm going to be swayed by something other than the information. My emotions are going to get into it. And I want to make sure that, that, love is, that love then is more than emotion, but it's a series of commitments and structures I've put into place so that when the emotions falter or when, when the siren song tries to get me to do something that I know would be a hindrance to the organization, I've got checks and balances in place to really keep me toward lock and step toward that vision of where I want us to go. Yeah, I want to dive into that, yeah. the emotion side, yeah. Yeah. the information versus emotion, because you can take in, but you sometimes you can hear what you want to hear yeah. and then allow that to inform. But how do we, how do we combat that, combat emotion and just letting almost information drive and letting yeah. truth drive, yeah. if you so, will? So here's where I would, you know, okay, so this is, you know, there's, a, there's an individual uh, that I think is, has, and I respect him greatly, uh, that has this phrase that he goes that facts don't care about your feelings. Right. But what's so fascinating about that is he always says it in a very emotive manner, mm-hmm. um, usually trying to compellingly make that particular argument, which is just fascinating because in that particular moment when he's saying that statement, he says that facts do care about your feelings. Facts are quite literally being propelled by your feelings. And, and it kind of requires us then to take two steps back and to understand that we are, we're emotive beings. Like, let's, let's trace all throughout history. You've got Augustine that would say in the fourth century that love, we're carried by the weight of our love. Like, we're emotive beings. It's just what we do. We, we naturally do that which we love. You've got David Hume that would write in the 19th century. He would say that our reason is but a slave to our desires. You have Paul that's going to write in the biblical narrative. We all are very aware of Romans 7 passage, where I do that which I don't want to do. Like, we know that feelings are a part of it. And sometimes I think we live in a world that tries to combat feelings and facts, when in reality, I don't think it's oil and water. I think it's, I think it's more peanut butter and jelly. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we, are, we want to inform our feelings in such a way that when, that when they might try to steer us, we might be able to have, have them informed in such a way that we're moving toward that particular end. Or... We're just as prone to thinking wrongly as we are to feeling wrongly as well. As Christians, I'm keenly aware that it's not just my feelings that are broken. It's my mind that's broken right. as well. It's the reason why Paul's going to be insistent in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, to have the mind of Christ, to renew our minds in him. So I know that my feelings can fail me, but I also know that my emotions will fail me as well. And so I want to have systems and structures in place so that whenever my feelings fail me or my thinking fails me, that it's still moving me toward that particular end that I have in mind with whatever group that I'm leading in that point. And then to understand that this is the key point that I thought was so illuminating for me. There's a book uh, called The Conservative Sensibility by George Will, and he brings up a really great point that this uh, 19th century thinker named Frederick Hayek would say. He says that progress happens when we're not thinking about what we're doing anymore. The things that are built into who we are now, uh, when we don't have to think about those things, we're able to utilize our minds in different ways. Uh, You don't have to think about making a phone call anymore. Well, that's a sign that society has progressed greatly because there used to be a day that we had to give great significant effort to think about making that phone call. But because you're not using that mind, you're not using your mind when you make that phone call, now you can think about something else. 
and now do you see how do you yeah. see how that is? Like I've just I've moved into such a way that I'm not having to think about these rudimentary things anymore. I'm able to move further along and so I, I can think about that next meeting I'm going to. I can think about that problem that's vexing me relative to what's on the future of the organization I'm leading. And so I, I, I'd hate for us to pit feelings and, right. and and reason beside each other because I think they beautifully work together. Yeah, and I'm reminded so much of all throughout Proverbs when it's talking about wisdom. If you look at the wisdom passage of Proverbs 8, talking about it's knowledge plus discretion. Yeah. And so you have the discretion of what is right and wrong. And when you mix those, the peanut butter and jelly, if you will, the knowledge plus discretion, there's wisdom. And it's it's way better than than rubies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's like, where does that play into it as well? Kind of what you're saying. I think think the number, I looked this up the other day. The number is like, we make 300 decisions a day we make over like or no 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 i think it's five thousand five thousand decisions a day i'll go back and i'll we can put it in the comments or whatever it's crazy the average number of decisions can you imagine having to spend time thinking about every decision that you make a day yeah. you would not you you could not get past breakfast no, can you yeah. imagine like going to some place to eat breakfast and logically thinking through every single breakfast item right. on that now what do you do you kind of you use that intuition that's been built up over the years of, well, I'm not really a big fan. Can you imagine thinking through logically every decision that you make in a day? Yeah. It's just, it's untenable. And so, again, that goes back to the intuition. Intuition allows us to draw upon the past and in the present build systems and structures to keep us where we know it's good, it's right, that's true, that's noble, what Paul would say in uh, Philippians 4a. It's that it's building those structures in such a way that we might be able to not necessarily think about those pressing moments here, but also what can we continue to think about in the future in such a way that requires our forethought because we haven't been there yet. That's good. I want to move a little more past decision-making and into connections yeah. or even just common conversation with, say, future employers, yeah. future people you're trying to connect with business-wise mm-hmm. in the church. Um, how does being well-informed play into making critical connections? Yeah. I, I've always just been captivated by the idea that Paul does in Acts 15 of trying to find common ground quickly, right? I, I, I just, I think he was so magical to try to figure out what are the, what are the, who are the writers, who are the thinkers, where am I, what's, what's surrounding me, and then in turn trying to find common ground with individuals through that. So for example, I know that we have common ground around running, and so I'm not going to try to force my conversation on you about running but I also know that we share that around right. each other. And so I want to I be cognizant of where can I find commonality with somebody and then in turn hopefully draw out uh, that with them and then in turn hopefully kind of make my particular ask of them or just try to bless them. I think but from a theological, and I don't mean to sound trite whatsoever, and this might be a little too much if we're talking about networking. One of the, like the, the little theology that runs through my head when I'm considering like, about to walk into a room where I know nobody, when I'm in desperate need of something, I have to like check my spirit in that moment because I have to recognize just this, these truths. One, in uh, Proverbs 15a, that it said that, that, that God delights to hear from me. Uh, it says, not only does he delight to hear from me, but in Psalm 121, he neither sleeps nor slumbers. So quite literally, God has not slept all through the night because he could not wait to hear from me. Not only that, but then we read about in Psalm 146 that he opens his right hand and he satisfies the desire of every living thing. 
We read about in Proverbs 4, or Philippians 4.19 that he's going to provide for our riches. He's going to provide for our every need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So then that changes my mentality when I walk into a room full of strangers because before I was before when I wasn't thinking about those truths of Scripture, what I was doing is I was going into that room and I was going to try to take something from them. But then, in turn, when I remind myself who God is and what He's doing for me, then in turn I realize that God is giving me every, He's given me everything I could possibly need. He's given me. It says in First Peter one, He's given me all things pertaining to life and godliness. That He gave me His only Son. How will He not also give me all things? So in turn, I, I switch from a position of trying to take something from someone in that moment, whether it's a validity, whether it's contact, whether it's a confirmation, affirmation of who I am, whether it's a business card. I'm not trying to take anything from anyone, but rather now I have open hands because I recognize my God has given me all things. He has yet to fail me in the past. And how might I, instead of trying to take something from someone in this moment, how can I just give and bless and being a blessing at the very core of it is just to remind individuals how close God is and how good he is. And so in terms of just trying to take something from someone, now it can be a blessing that tries to remind people of the goodness and closeness of God. And in turn, not only does that edify my own soul, but I think that allows me to be the fragrant aroma of Christ, is what it says in 2 Corinthians 2, to be the bright light. The, the salty individual, not the cultural understanding of salty, right. yeah, uh, but of just being salt, being salt of the earth. And so that changes that as well. Now, practically, that looks a little yeah. different each and every time. We can talk about that if you want. But uh, yeah, I just it just changes, right? It changes the mentality. No, that makes sense. I was going to ask practically what it looks like yeah. for you. Yeah. When you walk into a room, you know, you man, know no one. I know. What's going best, through your man. mind? Like, I'm literally from Tennessee. I had no clue. The, all the pitses, uh, like all my family <laughs> is, I am the only pits that has left Clarksville, Montgomery County. Really? Like Middle Tennessee. I came out here and knew nobody. Yeah. But I know, I know I'm an extrovert. Like, I know that I've always just really enjoyed getting to know people. And I've had to battle, like, so social science says that uh, we talk about ourselves 60% of the time. Uh, and so I've had to battle that, like, the idea that uh, I would decrease and that he would increase. And he just naturally has an a, a affection for other individuals. And so I, I talk to other people. So the way that works its way out practically. And so when I walk into a room, I, I and I don't know, I don't know anybody that's going to be in that room. The first thing I'm looking for is, are there individuals that are by themselves? Usually, if there's individuals that are by themselves, uh, you just have to walk in with confidence and just think, okay, I'm just going to have a, I'm going to have four to five questions that I can ask this person, and hopefully, I'm going to be able to find some bot, some bit of common ground yeah. so that we can have a conversation. If there's nobody there that's by themselves, then I'm looking for two people uh, that are just either talking to one another or kind of on their phones, right. kind of together. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. And so I uh, usually uh, then I just try to insert myself because I'm, I just think that it's probably better to be talking to somebody than it is to be on their phone, like on yeah, Instagram. Totally. Because we're on Instagram 35 minutes a day on average. So how can I then insert myself into that conversation and hopefully find common ground pretty quickly? And so, the, and then obviously, if I know somebody too, right. I, I'm I'm trying to make my way toward them and get to know more people. Yeah, like I just because I think everybody is desperate for some type of connection with one another. Like, can you guys imagine this? Like, 51 percent of Americans don't know their neighbors' names. That's crazy. Like, that's crazy. Like, 40 percent of Americans would say that they're lonely right now. 
25 years ago, the average American had 3.7 friends. Today, that number jumps down, is down to 1.7 friends. Which is so opposite because we're so connected. Yeah, yeah. Because this is like the prime time, especially for guys to be connected. Right. Before the age of 24, uh, guys are making more friends than girls. It's the easiest time for us to make friends. After the age of 24, girls will make more friends than guys, and guys will kind of essentially stop making friends. Mm. You just hold on to those friends. But like college is that time where you're like, I got no freaking clue who yeah. anybody is around here. Who wants to cause trouble and who wants just yeah. to hang out and stay up my, all hours of the night? So this is like the most beautiful time to really hone those skills yeah. of how can I how can I engage in small talk conversation to get to know one another, and in turn, when I don't have that collegial atmosphere that in the college campus. How can I go to the networking events, the happy hours, and hopefully try to apply what I learned in college when I didn't know anybody to now this setting where everybody's been working for eight, nine hours of the day, but they're just as hungry to have some type of connection. Right. You, you just got to get over yourself. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. like, just put yourself out there and talk to people. So here's like, uh, like one of my favorite quotes is this guy, David Foster Wallace. And he said, because I think we all have this insecurity of I mean, what are they going to think of me? Right. Like, what are they going to think of me? And uh, a DFW is like his name, which is awesome because we are in the DFW. So David Foster Wallace says, you'll stop caring how much other people think of you when you realize how little they actually do. Yeah. Like everybody's just kind of thinking of themselves. Right. Not really thinking about you. And so it's like, if you can walk up with confidence and like just walk up realizing they're not thinking about you, they're thinking about themselves, that frees you then just to get to know them who they're already thinking about and what the research indicates they're going to want to talk about, which is themselves. And so that's good. We just got to tap into what people want to talk about, yeah. which is not us. They yeah, want to no, talk about they themselves, talk about themselves. asking good questions. Yeah, that's yeah. so good. Yeah. Well, Nick, thank you so much for sharing that. I want to ask you one more question. Yeah. Just one we ask everyone. Okay. Just some advice. What would you look back and give 20-year-old Nick Pitts? What would you say to that person? What would you say to me, our listeners, as they look forward to leadership? What, what advice would you give that person? Don't, uh, don't be afraid to risk it to get the biscuit. Mm-hmm. And so, um, like my thing, like there's a study, there was a study that was put out, individuals that were facing a significant decision and they didn't care which way it went. And so this significant decision being, I'm thinking about getting married, I'm thinking about moving, I'm thinking about accepting this job, and they didn't know which way to go, whether to say yes or no to the risk. And so they were paralyzed by it, and in turn, they said, we're willing to let some computer flip a coin, and we'll, and we'll do whatever the computer tells us to do. And what the research found is that 26,000 people wrote in and said, we're willing to do this. And they flipped the coin. And what the research concluded was this, that individuals who took the risk, regardless of outcome, were more happy because they took the risk than if they had stuck with the status quo. I just think we're so averse to risk today. We're so preventative risk. And we really have so you have so little to risk when you're 20 years old. So what? You fall on your face. Well, you don't. I mean, you've probably got friends that'll put you up on the couch. You've got family that you'll have to put up with, but at least you'll get to raid the pantry. There's so many levels that you'll go through to really fall on your face and be a homeless person, right? Like, just risk it. And I think this is the kingdom of heaven, right? That's what Jesus says in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man finds and goes and hides again and sells everything. He risks it all to buy the field, just to risk and to know that 
think you find God in that risk, and in turn, I think you'll experience greater levels of happiness and deeper levels of satisfaction when you do. Just do it. Just do it. Just have an I, idea. Man, Go we for should, it. We should start a clothing company or a shoe company and have the motto, just do it. I think, think, I think it would be successful. I think I'm not, I mean, I'm not the best leader, but I think that would be, that's a killer idea. Somebody uh, should, if you're listening, you yeah, should do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you should. Just go yeah. for it. But Nick, thank you so much. No, thank can you. Can you tell them how to sign up for the daily briefing? Yeah. How yeah. can we find that? Yeah, so go to thebriefing.net. So www.thebriefing.net. You can sign up there to be a glutton for punishment and put up with me and my corny jokes and the top six to eight stories of the day. Do it. Go sign up for it right now. Nick, thank you so much for being nah, with us. It's been, a, been such a joy. It's, it's great to have be here. What's up, guys? One more thing before you go. This music all throughout the podcast is brought to you by the Vasco Band. You can find all of their music, including the song you hear on this podcast, on Apple Music, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Anywhere you find your music, they are there.